Hi, I'm your host, Rowan Tonkin, and welcome to Being Planful, the show for FP&A leaders and planning experts. Hi, welcome to the Being Planful podcast, and uh, my name is Rowan Tonkin, and I'm really pleased to be joined here by Brian Lapidus. Uh, he looks after the FP&A practice at uh, AFP, the Association of Finance Professionals. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, Rowan. Happy to be here. So before we get started, and I know we've got some really great topics to cover today, but I did want to just give everyone an, uh, an understanding of you and your background. You're, you've been an FP&A professional, and now uh, you're really evangelizing a, a lot of that work at, at AFP. And uh, if you could help introduce yourself to the audience. Sure, sure. So um, I have been 20 years in the office of the CFO. I've been in large companies like American Express and Fannie Mae. I've been in uh, mid-sized companies, private equity-backed companies, and consulting. Um, and in that, in that background, I've run FP&A. I've been in treasury. I've been in risk. So all around the office of the CFO. Well, that's great. And uh, how has that translated into your role at, uh, at AFP? Well... I think about my role as uh, I have the responsibility to create and curate content for the membership. So for me, I think about what I would have needed to know or what would have been helpful to me when I sat in that chair, either at running FPNA or um, you know any of the other any of the other steps leading up to the head of FPNA or even the relationship with other parts of finance. Um, I feel like I've sat in that seat in various versions of that seat long enough. So I kind of know, uh, I know what I didn't know then, and I try and plug those holes today. That certainly makes sense. And um, as we think about, you know, the role of FP&A today, that's uh, obviously changed immensely over the last, you know, six to nine months. How do you, um, when you're speaking to the membership, do you get a sense of how the FP&A community is, is holding up right now, given they probably felt like they've been planning and replanning, and now we're about to enter yet another planning cycle for everyone. Can you give us a sense of, of how the community is, is holding up? Well, I'll tell you, um, in the month of August, it was really hard to get a hold of anybody. People did a, a good job, I think, of taking time off before entering the new budget cycle, because you're right, uh, March, April, May was a continuous cycle of uh, of forecasting and reforecasting and all the what ifs. We, we really saw in our surveys, uh, we had a COVID a response to COVID survey, and then this past summer, um, a more detailed uh, FP&A kind of benchmarking survey. And we really saw that the number of forecasts that went up, uh, that we did increase significantly, more weekly forecasts, more, more daily, weekly, and monthly forecasts. All of it translated into more work. And so how are people holding up? There is a real burnout factor by the beginning of summer, um, just because just the workload was always immense and the stress around it was high. So I think in August, people really did a good job of kind of taking a pause. And now here we are, uh, call it the last week of August, early September, mid-October, people are back in the throes of, uh, of planning cycles. And what we're seeing, again, from, from our data, from our survey, is that the expectation for forecast cycles for next year is going to remain at that elevated level that it did this year. So the pressure and the pace is not going to decrease. Partially, I think people just got used to having 
the survey and the forecast, and they don't want to give that up. Yeah, and that's uh, that's certainly something that we've seen uh, seen from our end. And, and with that in mind, is that something that you predict will carry on? Is that that frequency of decision making and 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 data availability? And would that be kind of one of the lessons learned from 2020 that we, we can do this? So I, I agree with most of that. Yes, this pace is going to continue. Again, that's the expectation. It's in our forecast survey and nobody likes to ever give up information. And in some ways, FPNA has kind of put itself in a, in a, a bit of a, a tough spot by being able to deliver, right? People now say, oh, well, you did it before keep it going. The challenge is that that process of getting around that decision wheel from data to analysis to action, right? The faster you can get around that wheel, the better it is that it increases the velocity of the business. For the past six months, we have really been doing it with whatever tools and processes that we had before. At some point we need to, in order to get better, to get faster and to make more decisions, to increase that velocity, we're going to have to do, use better tools or become better at the tools that we already have. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in terms of taking that next step, I know uh, you've got the uh, AFP uh, conference coming up. It's uh, virtual this year and you've got some amazing guests, Daniel Pink and Shaq. Uh, you know, I was, I was looking forward to seeing Tony Hawk at the in-person event. I was hoping there was going to be a skate ramp and a 900, but uh, I believe you've pushed that to, to 2021. So we'll get him to do a 2021, right, at the, at the event. Um, well, I want to know, if, if I build a skate ramp, will you, uh, will you go on it? I would go on it, yeah. I'm not sure I'd go on it with a skateboard, but I'll, I'll go on it for sure. All right, I'll uh, hold you to that. I'll, I'll take a BMX bike. I used to do a lot of that as a kid. Um, but um, what can folks expect from the event? I know we're just a couple of weeks away. I'm sure you've been uh, deep in planning for that event and, and talking to a lot of the, uh, the guests and speakers. Can you tell us a little bit more about the event? Yeah. The, I always think of our conference as the all-you-can-eat buffet for finance and treasury. And it is, I mean, we have six different tracks. We have more than 130 sessions, somewhere around 100 vendors. Um, I mean, this we're really proud of the event that we that we're able to put on and bring to the membership and to the finance community. On the FPNA side, you know, every, every year there's always um, there's always a lot of submissions. We're very fortunate to have so many submissions and people wanting to come and speak. But every year there's always a bit of a theme. And what we heard loud and clear this year is how do we how does finance work with operations, right? In other years, it might have been about big tech, and we still have sessions on that about the, whether the large managing large data sets. But this year, in the submissions and in what the planning task force chose, it's how do we work with the business? How do we get their input? How do we get their partnership? And in some cases, the answers or the the presentations, mostly practitioner-led presentations, are their experiences with the technology that allows that integrated planning the partnership, the personal partnership of how to work with people and how to sit and how to invite them as part of your, your thinking process, um, how to make use of their expertise. And so that finance ops cohesion really uh, is an important subplot in the fp track. 
And is that one of your predictions as we move into kind of 2021 and beyond and, and we take some of those lessons learned about what you just said before around, you know, we, we've been kind of making do with what we had and we've been trying to deliver that as fast as we can because the business demands that. As we move forward into 2021, is that something that, that you're seeing FP&A really take that, that kind of lens, lens of being a, a little more tactical historically, potentially? I know that's uh, something that you've talked about. Your benchmark data historically always says, well, we're going to go from tactical to strategic this year. And it's been that way for a while. Is that something that you're seeing you know, genuinely going to change this year with, with what we've seen? It, it will. And the reason is that finance is moving out of this zone of just financial data and being able to incorporate more. And we see it in how the world has changed. So even so, I'll, I'll get back to that, but if I were to step back, what I would say is that the world has sped up and things, the need to respond real time to the market has sped things up. The, the, um, the unpredictability of the year that we've had has sped things up. So people need to have that reforecast that we talked about. They need to have different contingency planning and contingent resources. And so as a big picture, what we would say is that finance's response to the unpredictability of the world, of the world, of the information, is not to have a single point of view, not to have a single forecast or a single outlook, but instead to hold multiple points of view at the same time. That's really how you're ready for anything. And so we see that in three different fronts. We see that in terms of how finance gets done. The finance acumen that we use and that we apply, we think is going to change. So instead of a single NPV, maybe it's a range bound NPV. Instead of a single budget, maybe it's scenarios that you have to have multiple scenarios. Well, once you have multiple scenarios, then you, how do you value those scenarios? If you have a single valuation for that, you lose the optionality of turning something on or turning something off. So we see that even some of the math may change to option valuations. So you're going to need, so if, that, if that's what you, you're going to apply, you're going to need the technology and the tools that will get you through your decision cycle faster and will support you in a different way. So we're seeing that software has often built in a lot of statistical analyses. Well, that means that you have to know how to apply it, which means you have to know some more about statistics. We're seeing the need to forecast on demand, right? There's a new event. You have to have an event-driven forecast. So on the technology side, you have to have your data in place. You have to have your systems in place that will allow you to make the decisions faster, to reforecast faster, and to incorporate. Um, and then as far as what we need as individuals, you, you hit on one of them, right? That need to be close to the business to get that information that only the business has because they're the ones who are closest to the market. But it's also this sense that it's more important, the data, the data is out there. The answer, the data, it, we do not suffer from a lack of information. So because the information's out there in so many different forms, it's actually more important to ask the right question than it is to hoard the answer. 
Because asking the right question is going to help you navigate through this sea of data, figure out what you need, and then figure out the answer. So those are, the, those are the really the three things, the financial acumen to be in many places, the technology to get around the decision wheel faster, and defining work more important than doing the work. Those are, are really our three, our three insights or predictions, if you will, for the next, next couple of years. Sure. And what advice would you give to uh, FP&A leaders or emerging FP&A leaders in terms of expanding the financial acumen of their business partners as well? Because I think that's one of the, the key things that we certainly see is as finance leaders go out to the business, they need to do a lot of education as to why they're asking these questions and really kind of give that insight into to what the question is leading to uh, ultimately. Yeah, it's, it's that need for finance to be bilingual, right? Mm -hmm. You have to speak business, but you have to be able to speak about finance. And even more so, as I just laid out, you have to be maybe even more statistically oriented than we had in the past, which makes talking to the business a lot harder, right? How often does the business come back to finance and say, just give me the number? <laughs> well, it's not just one number, right? The number is based on a certain set of assumptions and we have high belief in, in some assumptions and less in others. So let's talk about these assumptions. And the answer, there is no, because there is no single answer, it's being able to lay out what the assumptions are and have the business own those assumptions, right? The more that they own the forecast or the inputs to the forecast, the more they're going to believe it, the more they're going to act appropriately well, in order to do that, we have to, that's where you get to the business partnership that, that you had brought up, right? You have to explain it to them probably several times and you have to do it in a way that's, uh, I'm just gonna be really blunt here. You have to do it in a way that's not demeaning. You mm -hmm. can't talk down to, uh, to them. I'll, I'll give you an example. I spoke with somebody recently and she was telling me she was brought in as a, a she was a former CFO. She also teaches statistics. So she was brought in as a, um, as an expert on this one certain topic. And so she sat down, she listened to the business and um, she said, okay, well, here's what I see. And she laid out statistically what they would need to do. But she got this feeling that, um, that they just didn't respond well to her. So she talked to somebody offline over the, uh, in, the, in the evening and then it went back in the morning. She said, look, I, it's, I got some feedback that you guys thought that, you know, here comes statistics women going to tell all the dumb business people what they don't know and what they should be doing. And she said, that's absolutely not what I meant. You guys are the ones who are running the business. Yes, I have this statistics background, but that's what I'm bringing to help you. That awareness, you know, the EQ to listen and realize when you're not being heard or when you're being misheard, the shared responsibility of saying, here's what finance does and here's what we do well, but here's what you guys do. And you guys are making the money, you're in the business, you're in, with the customer. The ability to put that together is really, really the definition of good business partnership and the role that finance can play and the value that we can add. Absolutely. And I think one of the things in, in my conversations that I have a lot with, with business leaders is, is the the thing that you mentioned first, which was assumptions, right? And, you know, if you go to the marketing team versus the sales team, the assumptions about the growth plan for next year may be two completely different assumptions. 
And so it's getting everyone on the same page with those assumptions first before we even enter the planning process, because then we can start to assume, okay, well, based on what we know, this is scenario A, this is scenario B as a shared assumption model. And that's one of the biggest failings that I see as people enter planning processes like what we're about to have, especially now when we think about what's going on, everyone's assumptions are wildly different right now. Um, and that may depend on industry, it may depend on region, and, and that is going to be a key, I think, for, for planning in, in for 2021. Finance also assumes that people understand modeling well, right? We assume people understand the assumptions and what's nailed down and what's not nailed down. And so when we give people the output of a model, they say, okay, here's the model, this is what finance is telling me. Um, we also have, we found that there's actually a gap between what core finance believes and what senior finance believes about how people know and understand modeling in general. Mm -hmm. Core finance has a much higher estimation of people's understanding. Maybe that's the way, one of the reasons why the senior people are senior is because they realize if you're not deep in the model, it feels a little bit like a black box, right? One of the things that we've advocated for a while is having multiple models. Now, in some cases, maybe it's multiple scenarios. And there's, um, you know, there, there's some literature out there about how many scenarios you should run. You know, someone says you should always run at least four scenarios um, just be, to force people not to choose the middle one, right? Force people to take a position and not be comfortable. Um, actually, at, at conference, we have a great session with somebody who talks about uh, running a naive forecast Right, which is basically a trend-driven forecast versus all of the other inputs that people give. And actually what he, did, what he did was he tracked over time the naive model, right? So statistical speak for if you just did nothing and did the minimal amount of work. And then a, a, the analyst review, the senior analyst review, and then the management review. And he said, which was the most accurate forecast. So whose review of the base naive model added or destroyed value? <laughs> and so by doing that, he was able to go back to the different people who gave input and said, okay, historically over time, this is more accurate, this is less accurate. These, this, the data tells you this, the on the top adjustments tell you that. And so by putting a rigorous measurement methodology on there, he was able to really uh, address that issue that you talked about. Whose data do you believe? Who's most accurate? Right? Who, who, who do you listen to? And uh, how can you make those meetings more productive? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, in terms of those, those types of conversations, as you highlighted earlier, we're not lacking for data anymore. Um, you know, we're actually probably suffering from too much and therefore valuing applying the same value to pieces of, of data, I think, where we just say, well, it's all data, it all has the same relative value and therefore its output will have the same value. But um, one of the things that you talk about a lot is, is data fluency. Um, can you explain what this is to our audiences and why it's important for all budget owners? Yeah. Data, so there's data fluency I think about it in two ways. One is as the individual, the ability to speak data well, but then it's also, it's how data flows throughout a company. So 
overall, what I say that I think data fluency is the ability for individuals in a company to produce and consume data with minimal friction, right? And that last part's important because we are producing data. Every time I take a spreadsheet from some, or take a download from somebody, put it into a spreadsheet, manipulate it and put it back in, I've created new data, but I've had to go through friction points in order to do that. The more that we can have systems that everybody uses, right? the mythical common source of, single source of truth, right? The more you could do that, the more you reduce friction. So what you need to have are the data sources, uses, and conversions and calculations be understood, be as minimal as possible, as few conversions, so that there is that single source that people can trust. And you need to have people who think data first. So at your senior levels, that means decisions are made based on data. So they start demanding the data and they start demanding the quality data. And it means that you need to have really controls and, and processes in place for when it gets created, how it moves, who owns certain calculations. And in some of this work is really dramatically not sexy, right? <laughs> Defining your data calculations is not, you know, is not the most fun. Putting data owners, sitting around the table and hashing out what are the right calculations uh, or what is the definition of a calculation? Because you may find that sales and marketing may have a different definition of a customer or finance comes in and says, okay, well, I need everything to align to the general ledger and operations is over here and says, well, we've got an entirely other computer system. And so there's a, a tremendous, is one of the largest friction points is between operational and financial data because now you've got to reconcile. So how do you reconcile? Well, you've got to sit down and argue about it and then you've got to build a, some other data mart somewhere or you go back and download it to a spreadsheet and you go you have your transformations and you know, put it through your ETL and bring it back up. It's, um, it's a real painful process. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you one example of a company that uh, I think did a, a great job. Uh, they, they're explaining how they built this data lake. So data lake says, the company says, look, we are one of the largest companies in the world. Um, trying to manage all the sources and all the different uh, databases is hard. So they built this data lake and they finance said, okay, we will control everything that goes in. Other people in the company can pull the information out because it's been vetted, right? We can't guess every possible use of every manager everywhere on the globe, but we can make sure that what goes in is standardized and they spent I think it was three years defining all the calculations, defining all the sources, defining how it could be used. So from there, it's everything that's in the lake is vetted. All the different databases are vetted, but because of that, they now have empowered people on the other side to use it because they understand and because they have, um, because they have confidence in the pure in what's what's in the lake yeah i was about to say the purity of the water in the lake is uh is crystal clear right so so now it's easy to drink it's easy to consume no one has to clean it all of all of that just makes 100 percent sense yeah and um as you think about um 2021 um, and i'm going to ask you for some uh some particular trends or predictions but are there any that you're seeing and hearing from the market that you don't agree with? 
Um, you know, everybody talks about AI and and what it is. Boy, you really put me in a, in a tough position here, right? If I say I disagree with something that comes true, boy, you know, <laughs> it'll be awkward. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you that someone, I don't know where I picked up this quote, but somebody said that AI is anything that's 50 years in the future. So you hear so much about what is AI and it's gonna come in this year and it's gonna be this and it's good at. Um, the flavor of AI that people are talking about now is really machine learning. And machine learning, when you break it down and you look at what it is, is much more understandable. AI, people get a little worried about because it's this sense of, you know, it's the Skynet robots and the Terminator robots. Um, so when I, I think about it that way, I think machine learning is very understandable. It's very real. Uh, and we can, because of, because of that, we can see what its strengths are and its limitations and its flaws. So I think that machine learning will come in and will be, and will be a big thing. Um, so I, so I, I don't worry too much about, about AI. Um, the other thing that I guess I'm a little skeptical, maybe I just need somebody to, to really show it to me well, is the idea of, you know, th there's a common phrase out there that we're moving from um, historical to descriptive to predictive and prescriptive analytics. And I think, first of all, the, the data on where we are today is we're certainly not there today. Um, you know, less, you know, I, I think roughly less than 10% of companies have something like that in place today. But the reason why I'm a little skeptical is that prescriptive analytics is essentially a set of regressions that look at historical data and say, this is what we've seen in the past and therefore this is what you should do in the future. Well, it's a little bit like AI. That's very understandable. Here is a trend analysis. And I've, you know, I've seen software that will go and it'll, you know, it'll run through 300 different kinds of algorithms and it'll give you the, you know, the whole winters um, or the ARIMA or whatever the forecast trend is, right? So I've seen that. And that's one of many different options. And then I've seen where uh, maybe I think a little more sophisticated on the, not more sophisticated, but a little bit different, right? That's usually internal. Looking on the external markets, here's all these different, you know, maybe it's the national GDP, maybe it's the regional GDP, and we'll run a regression relative to that. Okay, predictive analytics in its current state and its state for the next few years, I think is really sophisticated regression analysis. And when you look at it that way, you can understand its strengths, you can understand its weaknesses, um, and then it just becomes another tool that the analyst says, okay, I believe certain trends will continue, I think certain things won't, but in this world of fast changing, fast paces, black swan events every few years, um, you know, you have to really wonder about how much you can, how much the future is going to look like the past, which is the base of regression, which is the base of a lot of these predictive analytics. Yeah, I, uh, in between working for two different planning software companies, I took a little sojourn to a, uh, an accelerated analytics company. And uh, one of the biggest challenges that uh, data scientists ultimately have is building the models with enough features and the predictability of those features that go into the model to create the, the right outcomes. And I think when we talk about it, certainly in, in FPNA, we're dealing with a, you know, an inch level of features that we're sticking into the model 
to predict the outcomes, right? It's, you know, 48 different time periods prior. It's, uh, you know, different account structures, whether they're nested or uh, whether they're aggregated. And there's so many other different features that could drive that change in behavior that any output is limited um, because we're not accepting, to your point earlier, enough of the data that exists externally to actually make that, that outcome uh, more real or more reasonable. Yes, will it give you a broad base to start planning from? Could it give you some numbers to help you understand you know, some level of order of magnitude? Of course. But uh, I, I think, you know, given that experience from me, we're a long way away from what you're talking about, which is the, the true AI, if you will, where it's becoming much more prescriptive because we're not at the point yet where FPNA leaders and FPNA teams have the strength of data science capabilities in-house to, to actually build those, those outcomes with the level of predictability. I'm not sure if you would agree or disagree with that, but that's certainly as, a, as an outsider and, and kind of you know, a marketing leader and a revenue operations leader, I get sold a lot of AI and ML <laughs> and uh, I don't think we're there yet either. And, and I, I, I struggle to see how, you know, my peers in finance would, would be at that level either. Yeah. So financial data, I mean, so many things have to happen before you get to the bottom line of the financial numbers. So if you are trying to predict things based on the general ledger, right? So, well, some things are pretty stable, so it's easy to predict rent, right? That's very, but you don't, you don't need an AI machine to look at the contract and- you can That may, that may have changed this year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Or, right, or there it is because all of your historical data suddenly is, has, has been blown away. Uh, there's a great quote at our Findex conference. Um, one of the keynotes said that um, machine learning is, and, and all the, the AI that we have today is great at finding a needle in a haystack, but it's terrible at finding the tornado that's going to come over and blow your haystack down. <laughs> right? And that's what you, the, the rent question is just what you described. Sure, it could tell you in great detail what your rent forecast is going to be until everybody starts working from home and people cut their leases. So I, so I agree with you. I think that starting with the financial data is, uh, is a difficult place to make your long-term financial forecast. So you move to the operational data. Well, there's all of your internal data, but you know, so much of what happens is based on market forces, right? Just you know, in, in financial speak, you'd say that your, your beta is what drives your stock valuation. And you know, it's very hard to find the alpha, to find that management um, changes that really set your company apart. So it's really, so the market, well, then you start looking at the market and you say, okay, we are living in a, in a VUCA world, right? VUCA is the acronym that says information is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Ambiguous means cause and effect are really hard to find. So, the, so then people say, okay, we'll just get more numbers. Let's expand the view and bring in even more data. So that's great. So now you've got not three variables. Now you've got, as you said, 48 different variables that will help that you'll put into your model, right? So now you've got, now you've measured the multicollinearity of 48 different variables and it predicts something and something changes and you say, okay, so something changed. Which variable was it due to? Why did it change? That unpredictability, that inability to find cause and effect 
right? That is part of what we're seeing as the trend. It's hard to really know what's going to happen. So you have to be ready for everything. And you might have a, you might believe you're putting more science into your forecast model by bringing in 40 different variables, but then do you really know what's driving your business? So all of these things kind of getting back to, I don't, I think that prescriptive analytics has a really, a really hard road coming up. Um, I don't think we're there yet. I love the idea. I love the potential of it, but I don't think that we're there um, in the next 12 to 24 months. And so what, um, what advice or what maybe even at the event coming up, uh, what are people talking about the actionability and how they should be thinking about leveraging AI and, and more specifically, I would say ML, I would agree with you, leveraging ML today because it certainly does help, uh, help folks with you know, doing things just that little bit faster, starting them from a, an earlier place in time and, and giving that advantage just to, you know, Computers are great at calculating numbers, and uh, and and humans make mistakes all the time. <laughs> so, where where would you advise people to start, or is there any sessions that you could point uh, you know AFP members towards? Yeah. Um, so, ML is is a tool, right? There was a time that Excel was the new technology, and Excel was great, and it made things so much faster. And now it's ubiquitous; we don't even think about it. We are going to get there with machine learning and with so many of the other new technologies that are out there. So you can't be afraid of it. You just have to realize what it is that you're, what it is that you're going to do with it. And there are certain things that it can do better than, than you can. Um, in, one, in one session we have coming up, the, uh, the speaker is talking about creating scenario plans and he actually has R and, uh, our programming language and Excel. And he runs through an example side by side with the two. And then he says, this is the point where Excel fails. You, you, can, you, you could run all these different regressions in Excel, but you'd have to run them one by one. Whereas in R, I just ran you know, 37 different regressions simultaneously to find out all my correlations. And then also Excel had a limit of 16. Well. I've exceeded that, so I've been able to go beyond that. So it's a, it's a tool that you're just going to have to get used to and, use, and learn how to use and use better. Um, one of the other things, and I, I don't wanna give away too much from conference because it's gonna be great, <laughs> but, but one of the other sessions where um, the speakers are going to talk about the fact that you, um, that different parts of your forecast can be treated differently, right? There are some things that are low volatility and there are some things that are high volatility. So how do you put your time and effort in the things that, are, that require the most judgment, the most human in intervention, right? When do you go and you, when, which are the, the areas that you go and you sit down with a business and you talk to them and say, all right, what's really gonna happen? And what are the ones that are best for uh, putting on autopilot, so to speak? So, um, we have a lot of very tactical sessions that will help people think through those issues. All right. Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but um, you know, I, I'm certainly looking forward to the conference. Uh, I know there's going to be great sessions. I'm attending uh, from from my team's perspective, and I'm sure my my finance team will be going. 
Is there, uh, is there any, anything that you want to leave us with that maybe I didn't get a chance to ask today, Brian? Um, you know, it's, it's easy to, to say this, but it's hard to do this, right? It's that sense of when we look, to the, when we look forward and how are you uh, managing that unpredictability, right? How do you hold the multiple points of view? It's that we as individuals need to be flexible. And what, whether that means that the Excel that we learned before, you know, when we were younger, um, that that's all we know, there's new functionality and there's new features in there. And if you're using a SaaS-based system, right, it's not just enough to know how to put your numbers in, really get in and use it. We need to be flexible. We need to be growing all the time because the technology is changing and because of that, the processes that we're going through are changing. So part of, part of being ready for the future and holding these different views of the future means that we're going to be different selves. Ourselves as professionals are going to be different in the future. Um, so get, get your education, get your continuing learning, get your conversations and contacts with other people who can help push you and keep you learning. Um, because we are not finished products. We are always, uh, always improving. Yeah. And that's certainly something that uh, we want to keep the podcast focused on is how do you keep improving and how do you keep learning? And uh, thank you very much for, for the session and the content. I'm sure our listeners will, will find it really valuable. So uh, thanks again, Brian. I hope to have you back on and look forward to uh, the AFP conference coming up here in a few weeks. Great. Rowan, it was a real pleasure and I uh, look forward to talking to you soon. All right. Thanks, Brian. Bye. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for stopping by.